go to the movies. All of life's riddles are answered in the movies. Watch a few movies, take a few notes. <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> Welcome to Movie Night with Will and Noah. Thank you for being here. I am the titular Noah, and with me is the eponymous Will. How are you, Will? I'm well, Noah. I'm well. Um, so I, I got to tell you, by the way, I listened to your solo album slash podcast recording that you did about upcoming movies for 2019. And, uh, you know, I can best say it by borrowing from the words of Luke Wilson in Rushmore. Um, I liked your little podcast. It was really <laughs> cool. <laughs> well, I think it would have been better with you there, but it would have taken longer. And that's a trade-off. You know, some people just want their podcasts quick. Some people want them, you know, longer and, and full of content. So, you know, I, it's a trade-off I was willing to make for one week, but, but I'm glad you're back. I'm glad to be back. Can I ask you, Will, I told our listeners that you were out of town last weekend, but presumably you've been back since then. Have you had time to watch anything? Is there anything you'd like to recommend or not recommend to our listeners? Yeah, I, got, uh, I watched two movies, not the movies that I had planned on watching for our upcoming you know, wide release movie that we're going to talk about. I was going to rewatch Unbreakable, and then I was going to watch Split, both directed by M. Night Shyamalan, for the first time. Instead of doing that, uh, we decided to watch, my wife and I, movies that we would both agree to sit down and watch. So I have uh, one recommendation and half a recommendation. Uh, the Go first on. was uh, First Man, which I had not seen and everybody had said I should go out and see. This came out near the end of last year. It uh, tells the story of the Gemini and Apollo programs that lead up to the 1969 moon landing. It tells it from a very personal perspective of Neil Armstrong. Um, I liked it last night, but the more I thought about it today, I actually like it even more. Uh, this movie had some very silly controversy over some things that Ryan Gosling had said, questioning whether or not uh, the moon landing was an American achievement versus what he had argued was a, an achievement of humanity. And I would actually say after watching it, I would say that the movie is neither it is much more about the achievement of really a closely held few human beings. Neil Armstrong, obviously Buzz Aldrin, several of the pilots and astronauts who had died in the course of those years leading up to the moon landing. It's a very, very personal story, which sort of jarred me at first because I'm very, very interested in the space program, particularly in the 1960s. You know, this is not a remake of the right stuff. It's a exploration of one man's life uh, through loss and achievement and it is a very very rewarding and touching movie to watch so i highly recommend anybody who hasn't seen first man go see it i did see first man and i don't think i liked it quite as much as you did but i didn't dislike it and i do agree that the controversy was very silly having said that i think it's just a case of of the people who were uh, for those who don't know uh, some people uh, uh fox news i believe led the charge on this uh, argue that the movie was anti-patriotic because it didn't show enough 
American flags and it didn't show Neil Armstrong planting the American flag on the moon. And then Ryan Gosling said in a press conference that he thought it was not about uh, an American achievement and that Neil Armstrong didn't consider himself an American hero. People got very upset about that. But I, I agree with you. I don't think it was trying to be a patriotic story. I don't think it was trying to be propaganda, which is maybe what some people wanted it to be. It was a humanistic story and it certainly stayed very close to that lens. So I personally couldn't fault it for that. Yeah, um, I, yeah, I, we watched as a sort of lark because we thought it would be a funny movie. It actually was fairly funny. And this was uh, A Simple Favor, directed by Paul Feig, starring Anna Kendrick and Blake Lively. It came out last year. I would recommend about the first 40% of this movie, which is very entertaining and smart. Uh, the movie is kind of a convoluted comedic version of Gone Girl, which had Gone Girl not have been made, the movie would be more interesting. It kind of borrows from Gone Girl in a way, which actually limits the amount of surprise that one gets from the plot twists. But ultimately the movie becomes kind of a jumbled up mess. But the first near half of the film is much more interesting as a social commentary about you know, these mini rifts that are happening within even uh, the same strata of people in society based upon wealth, background, education, and even in a group of people who are similarly the same, there's much of the same polarization, um, you know, people being at odds culturally with each other, suburban moms versus working suburban moms, um, money, the lack of it, the appearance of wealth, hiding all sorts of debt, and the dialogue between Blake Lively and Andy Kendrick is just, it is slap your knee funny. But after that, when it becomes a kind of weird murder mystery, it, uh, it loses a lot of its charm. Sounds interesting. That sounds uh, outside of Gone Girl. Like it, it doesn't sound like there's a lot of things one could compare it to in terms of what else is out there in, in cinemas. So uh, you've piqued my interest. I'll probably check it out. I saw The Upside with my wife this week. We went out to the movies like normal people and uh, sat there and had popcorn and watched what, what I thought was like really good lowbrow entertainment. And I don't mean lowbrow as an insult. I mean that this is a movie that is really trying to hit all of its bases, appeal to everyone, and tell a quaintly uplifting story about people from different uh, parts of the world learning to get along. And I think there's a lot of people out there, especially on the internet, who don't like movies like this anymore. They don't like movies like Green Book, which is about uh, people from different races in a racially uh, difficult time learning to get along. And there are some other issues with Green Book, some legitimate grievances people have with it, but I can't help but notice the similarities between the two. Um, the Upside is about an older, uh, rich, white guy who happens to be a paraplegic, quadriplegic actually, who has to hire a helper uh, to take care of him and he hires a, a young, poor black man played by Kevin Hart. Brian Cranston plays the, the white guy. And he hires him initially because he doesn't want to live. And he figures this guy who has no qualifications will screw it up. But of course, he ends up getting along with him well. They kind of end up inspiring each other. And it all ends very happily. And there's no spoiler alert there. It's clear from the opening frames that this is the kind of movie that's going to have a happy ending. And it's made quite a bit of money in the box office, although the critics seem to hate it. I'm a critic myself, and I really liked it. Uh, we had a good time at this movie. We left feeling a little better about the world. And I don't know. That doesn't seem like such a controversial thing to me. 
One question. Did you see the original French version of this movie, which I believe translated is called The Untouchables? I think it came out a few years ago. I did see it, but I remember very little about it. And to be honest, I may remember very little about The Upside in a couple of years. Uh, it's not the kind of movie that really lingers in your soul. Uh, but, you know, not every movie has to be that. It doesn't. And listen, American films specialize in not being the kind of thing that everyone has to remember a few years later. I, I tend to prefer <laughs> the American version. If there is an American version of something that's originally South Korean or British or French or what have you, you know, the American version, it always goes down easier. A little less movie indigestion, less to think about. That's true. Three Men and a Baby would be a good example of that. <laughs> this is very true. <laughs> One of the great movies of our youth. I have seen the French version of Three Men. Anybody who attended high school French in the mid-90s has seen the French version of Three Men and a Baby. You mean the teacher was hung over one day, so she just, he or she just put that on? There were a lot of, there was actually a lot of great French films, excepting, you know, Trois Hommes and Un Bébé uh, that we saw. <laughs> they were actually good, but they were just on because the teacher was like, yeah, we're not doing this lesson plan today. So, you know, watch Jean de Fleurette or Manon de la Source or, you know, some actually really interesting movies, but um, we sort of accidentally enjoyed them. All right, well, let's move on to Glass. My name is Dr. Ellie Staple, and I'm a psychiatrist. My work concerns a particular type of delusion of grandeur. It's a growing field. I specialize in those individuals who believe they are superheroes. <laughs> Good for you. Am I to understand that you have not seen Split? I have right not now? seen Split, and after seeing Glass, I am glad that I did not give M. Night Shyamalan any more of my time. Well, here's what I want to say about that. Uh, I was When I was watching this movie, and I'll do a plot summary in a second, I was watching this movie, I was thinking this movie would be incomprehensible to somebody who had not seen the previous movies. So that could be part of the problem, but I don't think that's going to account for all of the problems you had with the movie. So let me just get into it. Glass is a sequel to two different movies, 2000's Unbreakable and 2016's Split. Bruce Willis uh, is the star of Unbreakable, and he played a character called, uh, well, he played a character named David Dunn. In this movie, he is now a superhero who has been dubbed the Overseer. He, has, uh, he can't uh, have his bones broken, and he's very, very strong. Those are his superpowers. James McAvoy played the villain in Split, uh, a person with... Uh, dissociative identity disorder, multiple personality disorder, essentially. And he, he has like a dozen or so personalities that he cycles through. He's known as the Horde. That's his supervillain name. In this movie, they get locked up together in a mental hospital that also happens to house Mr. Glass, who is a comic book aficionado from Unbreakable who helped David Dunn become the overseer. But he's actually a villain himself because he had to kill hundreds of people to find David. Mr. Glass has something called brittle bone disease. David's bones don't break at all. So finding David and uncovering his superpowers gave his life a sense of purpose. So you got a hero and two villains in this mental hospital overseen by Dr. Staple, who's played by Sarah Paulson, and is trying to convince them that they're not superheroes or supervillains. They're just regular people with uh, severe mental illnesses. And there's a lot of problems with this movie and we can get into them. But to me, the, the biggest problem with the film 
is that there are long, long stretches in the middle with these four characters just talking about this idea, whether or not these characters are superheroes or supervillains or whether they're not. But it never convinces us there's any doubt that they are those things. We know from watching the first movies what these people are capable of, and the screenplay never manages to convince us for more than a few seconds that there's a chance we're wrong about that. So Shyamalan's script has these people just sitting around talking about this idea, and there's absolutely no stakes to any of it because we already know the answer. It feels like the movie is really just spinning its wheels to get us to its big finale, which is not actually staged particularly interestingly. Shyamalan has never been good at staging action sequences, and he's not good at it here. Uh, but even all the stuff up until that is not engaging or entertaining. And to me, the only thing that is entertaining in this movie is watching James McAvoy spin through all of these personalities. I mean, he, he, he has a few scenes where he, he changes every few seconds from one personality to the next. It's an incredible acting feat. But A, it's exactly the same thing he did in Split. And B, these scenes do nothing to move the plot forward, almost. We don't need any of it. But I think Shyamalan recognizes that it's really fun to watch and we need something fun to watch because Bruce Willis is essentially sleepwalking through this movie as he has his last 15 movies. And Samuel L. Jackson's character is literally catatonic for the first hour. So there's a fundamental disconnect in what the movie is trying to achieve. And it really, really didn't work for me. Just to touch on Samuel L. Jackson's performance, I actually liked him when he wasn't talking for the first half of the movie. <laughs> I found his character, I'm being serious, but I found his character actually more interesting because there was that anticipation of what's he going to say and what's he going to do. And this goes to a sort of larger issue that I found in a lot of M. Night Shyamalan's movies is there is a buildup, uh, sometimes a seemingly interminable buildup, to a very, very poor payoff. In fact, you know, the law of diminishing returns, I think, can best be understood through the progression of M. Night Shyamalan's films. Like, he mm -hmm. opens with The Sixth Sense. I believe that was his first wide release movie. And that's got a yeah. huge payoff in the end. You know, spoiler alert, we've had enough time since the movie came out. <laughs> Bruce Willis is dead. And Haley Joel Osmond, uh, he sees dead people. And Bruce Willis is one of those dead people. That was a huge payoff. Uh, every other movie, or most of the movies that he's made since then, the last 20 years, are structured in a similar way, where they're, I mean, for a time anyway, when M. Night Shyamalan was a hot director who people couldn't wait to see the movie, they were going to see the movie for the big end of the film plot twist, you know, the M. Night Shyamalan oh. twist. And over time, the twist became less interesting. The movies, if they didn't get longer, they certainly felt longer in terms of runtime. And they just became less and less interesting. Some of that has to do with the fact that it's hard to do the same trick twice. And also he is interested in things, in aspects of a story and aspects of a character that I don't think are commonly shared by audiences. Mm. So I think that's right. You know, he makes a comic book movie. You you know, he's made basically three comic book movies. If Split, properly understood, is also a comic book movie where... I agree. There does need to be an alternative to the big blockbuster CGI, Aquaman's Justice League, you know, Avengers Part 19 stuff. I get it. But this is, you know, this is the wrong alternative. He focuses on, I think, some of the least interesting parts uh, of the superhero story. And there is such a mismatch between the tone and the dialogue on one side 
and what is actually going on visually. The tone and the dialogue hypes up what you're about to see, and then what you see sort of fails to meet expectations. The fight scene at the end is the perfect example of this, which is they're promising, he verbally, several characters promise that there's going to be a huge comic book style showdown in the tallest building in Philadelphia where Bruce Willis not only has to fight and use the full potential of his powers against James McAvoy, while at the same time possibly disarming some terrible explosion that's gonna kill thousands of people. And instead of that, we get a not that interesting superhero fight in a parking lot where neither character bests one another. So that was so interesting to me because I think there's two things going on there. Number one is he's upending expectations, right? And I'm sure that's what he would say artistically he's trying to do there. But it should be noted that this movie had a pretty low budget for a superhero movie. And I have to think that he didn't have the money to stage a big showdown that involved people falling out of buildings and, and that sort of thing. So I, I do think that's a problem. And you could probably make the same argument why they're stuck in that mental hospital for the whole movie, because it was probably not very expensive to just shoot a bunch of people, you know, in close up monologuing in a room. And that is the bulk of the movie, as it turns out. But I do, I do agree that I kind of admire its attempt to say something about the superhero genre. As so many superhero movies just feel like they're produced by cookie cutters and, you know, they have really no, no comment at all. This movie is trying to do this, but its comment was a little strange to me. I mean, the whole, all of Unbreakable was about David Dunn resisting the call to become a superhero. And Mr. Glass wants superheroes to be out there because it makes him, gives him some sense of identity. And in this movie, the whole theme of it, as it turns out, is that Mr. Glass wants people to know that there are superheroes, that superheroes can't hide anymore. First of all, that theme has been explored many times before in movies, like the X-Men movies, for example. So it's not that interesting, but it's also completely mismatched to our era. I mean, I look around and see superheroes everywhere. Every time I turn on the TV, every time I go to a movie, all I'm hearing about or reading about or seeing are superheroes. So this whole notion that superheroes need to get out and the world needs to see who they are just it held no interest for me whatsoever. And these super beings is one is a villain and one is a hero. McAvoy the villain, Bruce Willis the hero. Uh, Glass, I wouldn't even call him a super anything because the power mm. that he's supposedly demonstrating is just that he's really, really, really smart. Like, okay, you know, mm -hmm. so was Hannibal Lecter, but he wasn't a superhero. He didn't have superpowers. He was just, and there are these people, very, very smart people. Uh, who are capable of doing bad Lex, things. Lex Luthor? Lex, Lex Luthor well, was a super no, villain. Well, he was smart. He's, okay, so Lex Luthor is a supervillain because Lex Luthor manages to achieve superhuman feats by virtue of his brain. Mm -hmm. Whereas Samuel L. Jackson pretends to, uh, you know, start an act of terrorism in Philadelphia and frees two guys from a not very well guarded psych ward. That was his superhuman <laughs> accomplishment in this movie. And obviously he's in the, the first uh, of this trilogy, Unbreakable, which by the way, before Glass, that was the last M. Night Shyamalan movie that I saw in theaters. That was the last time I walked into a theater singing, oh my God, 
what's he going to do now? It's an M. Night Shyamalan movie with Bruce Willis, who is great in The Sixth Sense, and he's a superhero, and it's going to be amazing. And uh, Well, superhero movies were not as popular back then. I think X-Men had already come out, but maybe that was it. It was. Uh, in terms there was of- a big gap. X-Men okay. movies were sort of the only thing coming out in the early 2000s until you got to, uh, I believe, 2007, Iron Man. I do think it's a combination of diminishing returns, knowing that the twist ending is coming, it doesn't shock you as much, but there are definitely some cases where he gets lazy and he uses the twist ending to justify everything that came before instead of building a tight, meaningful script in which the twist ending actually kind of is, is the capper to the movie instead of being the whole point of the movie. And that's definitely how this movie felt. I also fell asleep in the middle of this movie. Uh, I'm not the type to usually fall asleep in movies. I got a good night's sleep before. It was like, you know, one in the afternoon that I was seeing this thing. I just got bored in the middle of it. Uh, and, and actually... I did too. I almost, I almost fell asleep too. I, I managed to hold off, but it was close. To your point about not seeing Split, actually having not seen Split, I found the introduction of James McAvoy in this movie to actually be very entertaining. And I found that he's actually really embraced and did a terrific job with that role. He's the best thing in this movie. Samuel Jackson, who, going back to Unbreakable, that movie came out, I think it was, what, 2000, 2001? Yep, 2000. That was sort of the dawn of Samuel Jackson as a caricature of a character, whether he was playing, uh, you know, superhero Nick Fury or he's uh, in some of the Tarantino movies he would just play a very, very extreme version, an unrealistic version of that character. This, I think Unbreakable is around where that started, where Sam Jackson's career just took what I think is an uninteresting turn. Going back to Samuel Jackson, who was actually quite a fine character actor in, uh, what's it, Jurassic Park, uh, Patriot Games, really a bunch of movies in the 90s uh, before he becomes Sam Jackson. And I think back, it's, it's kind of a sad thing, the direction his career went. Very lucrative in plenty of things. Nobody could consider his career a failure. But his performance in Glass, which again is sort of over the top, and his dialogue and his statements are kind of unearned or at odds with what's actually going on screen, it, uh, it reminded me of the direction that his career went and, and sort of the tragedy that it didn't go in a more interesting direction. You know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of the way James Baldwin has written about black actors in film and how they often, when they become successful, have to resort to minstrelism. And, you know, Samuel L. Jackson used to play very understated characters. I mean, he brought something interesting to them, but it was never shouting about the mother effing snakes on the mother effing planes or anything like that. And I think something happens to a black actor in Hollywood when they start to get popular in some ways, it limits their options in terms of what they can do on screen. And that seems to be what has happened to Samuel L. Jackson. He's gotten locked into this outlandish character uh, that has a place in, in Hollywood cinema, uh, unfortunately, but isn't that interesting and doesn't reveal anything about himself. What do you take to this movie? No one. I, and I, yeah, I think I feel the same. I say that because I almost took my wife to this movie, and I'm so glad I didn't because I would have been blamed. She wouldn't have blamed M. Night Shyamalan. She would have blamed me. I would have taken the hit for this one. What about like um, 
a 14 or 15 year old kid, if you had a son, you do have a son, but he's not that age, or even a, a niece or a nephew, you know, somebody who's like starting to learn that you can make movies that are different from other movies, maybe somebody who's only seen the Marvel movies, and you want to show them that there are films that can comment on themselves. Would this be a good movie to kind of open up their mind a little bit? I'd buy that. I'd buy that. But my concern is they would become some type of M. Night Shyamalan fanboy or fangirl and, you know, have some ridiculous argument. The way that those people who think that the Justice League movies are actually good and that Zack Snyder is a good director. Like, what, what if my niece, nephew, or older child became like that? And be like, oh, God. <laughs> So now we move on to our draft, and this week we're going to do a draft of the best films ever to be released in the month of January. And the reason we're doing this is twofold. Number one, it's January. Number two, it's an interesting topic for discussion because typically January is seen as a dead zone for movie releases. Uh, I don't know that this has always been the case, but certainly as long as I've been paying attention to the movies, it's the time when studios sort of dump their bad films or put a bunch of kind of lowbrow genre movies out in theaters, probably because a lot of highfalutin folks are catching up on Oscar movies in January. And there's another segment of the population that wants uh, more escapist entertainment. So that's typically what comes out in January. But Will and I are going to be digging for some hidden gems uh, in the last few decades of Hollywood releases in January. And I believe the last time we did a draft, I had the first pick. So, Will, first pick to you. Okay, so first pick to me for movies that came out in what is commonly called the dumping ground, the month of January, is 1985's The Falcon and the Snowman, directed by John Schlesinger. They were best friends from boyhood. Then they committed a crime against their country. Within 18 months, they became the two most wanted men in America. Their story is true. This is the story of Chris Boyce and Dalton Lee, two young men who, uh, as a result of Chris Boyce's employment at the CIA, end up stealing U.S. government secrets in the early 70s and selling them to the Russian government, uh, starring uh, Timothy Hutton, as Christopher Boyce, who's the spy, and Sean Penn as Dalton Lee, his coke-addicted, screw-up friend who convinces him and facilitates a lot of these illegal sales of information. The story is moving. It really expresses an idea often found in movies about uh, spies or traitors that uh, the traitors themselves often feel betrayed by their family their government uh, society at large and that their act of treason understood by the government is really an act of rebellion against those that they feel have wronged them in the first place. Um, it's back when Timothy Hutton was actually uh, something of a leading man. Uh, Sean Penn does an absolute blockbuster performance as a guy who's starts out kind of shaky and then his life and mind sort of falls apart. He's done this a few times, Carlito's way. She's so lovely. Uh, he, he really does a great job playing a guy who's barely keeping it together. And then at a certain point just can't. So I, uh, this is directed by John Schlesinger who did 
Marathon Man and uh, Midnight Cowboy, whose career sadly ended on uh, the Madonna Rupert Everett movie, which I believe was uh, the next best. The thing. next best thing. I've never seen it, but it it's famous for how bad it yeah, is. Message to directors: Make every movie as if it's your last, because just like uh, <laughs> you know, fans of John. Uh, uh, Frankenheimer found in Reindeer Games. Uh, you never know which one's your last. <laughs> I've never seen The Falcon and the Snowman. I actually came across it in my research this week, but I didn't get around to watching it. So I'm glad you mentioned it, and I will bump it up my list. For my number one pick, I strongly considered putting Gone with the Wind at number one. Gone with the Wind did come out January 17th, 1940. But I feel like that doesn't really apply here when we're talking about the dumping ground, because I don't think that's what January meant back then. And there's another movie I thought about putting on the list, but we've talked about it on a previous episode. It's another classic. So I'm leaving off that as well. And I'm starting with Zero Effect, mm -hmm. January 30th, 1998. You're probably the best. Excuse me. Excuse me. You are the best private investigator in the world. Two shots, down she goes, execution style. Guess what the victim's name is. Uh, let me guess. No, I don't mean really guess. There's no way you can actually guess. Clarissa. People who know me know that Zero Effect is one of my favorite movies of all time. And here's a little anecdote to explain how much this movie means to me. A couple years ago, I was working the red carpet at the premiere of a movie called Battle of the Sexes up at the Toronto Film Festival, which means that every actor in that movie would come and talk to me and I'd have to ask them some questions about their role or about the movie itself. I talked to Steve Carell, Emma Stone, Sarah Silverman, a bunch of other people. When Bill Pullman came to me, I spent my allotted two minutes talking to him about Zero Effect, knowing that it was completely inappropriate and that that footage would be unusable. That's how much I love Zero Effect. He is the star of this movie, which is the directorial debut of Jake Kasdan, uh, the son of the famous screenwriter Lawrence Kasdan. And Pullman plays, it's sort of an updated take on Sherlock Holmes. He plays Daryl Zero, a brilliant but antisocial private detective. He has a put-upon assistant uh, played by a young Ben Stiller and really no one else in his life at all. Uh, the film follows him on a case involving the blackmailing of a wealthy businessman played perfectly by Ryan O'Neill, probably his last great role. And this movie, it, it's just a delicious script. And it really plays its audience perfectly. There are significant twists and turns to the case. But for me, the biggest twist is that it becomes a character study about halfway through. It becomes about Daryl Zero and the psychological barriers that make him such a, an expert observer and a great detective. It also becomes a love story. And it does all of this without losing the thread of its central mystery. It wraps all of it up together, which is an incredible narrative achievement uh, it's a smart movie it's a funny movie it's sad it's also a very cool movie and to my mind it's kind of a perfect movie so that is my number one pick. it was among my honorable mentions it did not make my top five but it was uh, a movie that i had paid attention to i think it's really the last great bill pullman role uh, a guy i think so too and i'm not i'm not going to stand here and say it, it's actually the, gr the greatest movie of all time but it is my favorite, and I think anybody who likes that genre will definitely find something to like there. Um, my number two pick is Black Hawk Down, 2002, directed mm -hmm. by Ridley Scott. 
it's an interesting movie because even though it's come out after 9-11, it was made in part before 9-11, and it actually reflects a lot of pre-9-11 attitudes in terms of filmmaking. Uh, it's obviously the story of the Army Rangers and Delta Force members who fought in Mogadishu in 1993 in a pitched battle in which they were besieged by thousands of enemy forces in Somalia. Uh, basically, it's a botched mission. These men were sent in to extract a high-level target during a UN-backed humanitarian mission in Somalia that really ends kind of the last, at least for the time, of the great you know, neoliberal foreign policy adventures that America was undertaking in the post-Cold War era and you know everything goes horribly wrong but these soldiers managed to fight back against incredible odds and ultimately they're successfully evacuated from the city i like it because i'm a big fan of ridley scott most of his movies anyway but there are so many great actors even those in bit roles that would later be introduced to stars uh tom hardy mm. eric Bana, sort of coming into his own at this point uh, oddly enough, it was the, the high point of Josh Hartnett's career. We all thought that Josh Hartnett was going someplace. Um, well, he did. He eventually went to a, a bad Showtime horror show that uh, a small group of people watched. But at the time, Josh Hartnett was big news. And yeah. Tom Sizemore, uh, I think it's probably the last major motion. He went somewhere. Yeah, it was the last major motion picture that he was in. Uh, actors that I've always followed, like Jason Isaacs, uh, who we had mentioned in a previous podcast, who is in uh, The Death of Stalin. Just right. about half the actors in this movie are either British or Scottish or Australian. I mean, they're all playing Americans, but uh, this movie, which is all about an American, uh, you know, misguided but well-intentioned war effort in Somalia, uh, has a bunch of Brits. It's really the start of the, you know, we don't have enough Americans who can play Americans, so we've got to we've got to import to do the jobs that American actors apparently won't do. But uh, that's very interesting because, of course, superheroes is where that's most often mentioned. You know, with Christian Bale and, and Hemsworth and all that. But you're right; this is an early uh, early note that was about to happen. Yeah, uh, and it's it's a movie I've seen a number of times. When I mentioned that it's sort of pre nine eleven mentality, there is not there's barely no judgment whatsoever on the war effort that these Americans are conducting. The, the worst sin of America, uh, sins which we you know, examined in multitude in the post 9-11 era in a lot of filmmaking, I think some of which is a backlash to the war on terror or the war in Iraq, but in Black Hawk Down, America's worst sin is innocence or naivete. You know, we're entirely well-intentioned, we're trying to help these people but it's clearly a war we can't win. And it's, it's just, it captures an interesting mindset of the time. It's, it's sort of a, a holdover from the 90s where now, America was still optimistic. So I know this movie made a lot of money, but I don't remember the critical reception because this is post 9-11, but pre-Iraq war. Was it considered militaristic at the time or, or was it criticized for that or was it more non-controversial? It was criticized for that because, and even though Ridley Scott doesn't make too much of it, the bad guys, if you could call them that, the Somalis that are attacking American forces, which are treated, you don't get much of their perspective, except for 
one character monologuing to Ron Elder, who's a pilot who shot down, about how you guys aren't going to win this and this is a fight that doesn't concern you. But all the bad guys, the opposition forces, are all Muslim. So this is a movie in which about 4,000 African Muslims are shot by Americans. And it was not a well-received, a critically well-received movie at the time. Uh, it, it did do pretty well at the box office, but people felt that you know, it should have had some introspection in terms of what was America's mission in the world, and particularly in interacting with a, a hostile Muslim force when at the very moment, America was once again in Afghanistan uh, engaging with a hostile Muslim force. And so it, it, the movie, I think, was felt as wrong for the time because it was. It was made before America once again launched what some felt was another crusade. So switching gears entirely, my number two pick is Broadway Danny Rose, ah. January 27th, 1984. Who are you? Danny Rose, theatrical management. Who else he handled besides Lou? One of the great balloon-folding acts of all time. Do me a favor. I want you to bring Tina. But do she know she married? That's why you got to bring her. You can't ride two horses with one behind. Uh, these days, everyone wants to forget that Woody Allen existed. I understand that. Uh, the big movies that he made, like Annie Hall in Manhattan, are going to be harder for us to forget because they're part of cinema history. But little gems like Broadway Danny Rose are already forgotten. And it's a shame because if you are able to still enjoy Woody Allen's work at all, this is one of his most purely enjoyable films. Uh, it's shot in black and white. He plays a lowly talent manager who has acts like a lady who plays the glass harp and a guy who makes balloon animals. And he has one real talent on his roster. It's this Italian lounge singer who is not much to look at, but he has a good voice and some charisma. And there's a nostalgia craze in, in the film. So people want guys like him who were big in the 50s. This movie is shot in the 80s. So there's a small window where he might be able to make some money off this guy. And he has a big show coming up, and he wants Danny Rose, played by Woody Allen, to bring his mistress, played by Mia Farrow, to the show. He can't bring her because his wife is going to be there. So he wants Danny to bring her and pretend that she's his girlfriend. So he goes to get her, and she resists, and complications ensue that involve the Italian mafia. And it's a real lark. There's some really goofy stuff in it. Um, my favorite is probably there's a shootout at a, at a helium factory. Uh, but there's some real pathos in there as well. Looming over the whole plot is this thing that Danny's clients, they always leave him as soon as they catch a break. And that subplot provides one of my favorite shots in Alan's entire over that comes at the end of this movie. So I think it's funny. I think it's poignant. And if you're still into watching Woody Allen movies, this is one that, that would deserve a rewatch. It also has one of the best openings of a Woody Allen movie ever because the entire movie is narrated by a group of comedians who are like old time Borscht Belt types who are sitting down at the Carnegie Deli who are telling the story of Broadway Danny Rose as if he's a kind of legend. And in that scene, uh, it features none other than the actor who plays Jack Plompus in Seinfeld. And I had never, I'd never seen him in anything other than Seinfeld. And he was one of my favorite bit characters in Seinfeld as Jerry Seinfeld's he's the one, rival, he's, yeah. He's the one actually telling the story about him. Mm -hmm. And it is a great device because it starts with them sitting there just talking about all these guys they know. And one of them's like, oh, but let me tell you about Danny Rose. And it, it, it pitches him as just another guy, that there's a hundred guys like him 
And it's a very cool way to kind of frame the whole thing. What's your number three pick? Number three, and you're not going to like this one. Um, it's uh, 2009's Taken, directed by Pierre Morel. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you are looking for ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills I have acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you. And I will kill you. I say you're not going to like this because Noah Gattel is a notorious, notorious hater of Mr. Liam Neeson. And uh, I'm I have some issues with him. I have issues with him that have nothing to do with his on-screen presence. But, but go, so go ahead. I understand that. Um, so Taken is the movie which launches Liam Neeson's now decade-long career as an old man action hero. Uh, Taken is the first of such movies and is really the best. And it kind of ties into Black Hawk Down because it is once again a movie that is either come out too late or come out too early. It comes out in January of 2009 after the uh, election of Barack Obama and not just the election of Barack Obama and his ascension and sort of the ascension of a new political moment in America and indeed the West, but it also stands, you know, the a refutation of the Bush administration, of those ideas that defined, a, you know, almost a decade of war, fortune, venturism, um, you know, a myopic view that America was supreme. Taken as a sort of right-wing countercultural uh, comeback to the dawn of the Obama era. It's the story of a CIA officer, former CIA officer at the time, even politically, we're talking about, you know, people working for the CIA being imprisoned for their misdeeds during the Bush administration. Um, mm. He's a divorced man whose daughter, played by Maggie Grace, who's about 30 in the movie, I think, but somehow plays a 17-year-old okay. girl, um, but uh, somehow she pulls it off. Uh, and she, she and her mother are now in the house of this very, very rich man, but he's sort of a weakling in comparison to uh, the humble yet... Uh, you know, masculine, uh, quiet manliness of uh, Liam Neeson. And Liam Neeson is sort of seen as the loser in the beginning of the story. And he warns his daughter against going off on this European vacation and tells her all sorts of things are going to happen. He's dismissed by his ex-wife, played by Famke Janssen. And he's proven to be right because within the first 20 minutes of the movie, she gets kidnapped and he's got to use all of his old CIA skills to go and find her and retrieve her. And it's a very, very, uh, I would say somewhat retrograde film in terms of its ideas and attitudes. Uh, every villain is either a corrupt Frenchman or a nefarious Muslim, both uh, Arab and Albanian. Uh, he's sort of, Liam Neeson is kind of this old white male that no one listened to, but now in a time of crisis, he's the man that they need. Uh, violence and torture solves every problem. And uh, he is ultimately victorious and has reestablished himself as the dominant male in Maggie Grace's life by the end of the movie. But it also has terrific action sequences. It's got a uh, 
sort of very, very tight plot that doesn't go down too many threads. And it's kind of an old-fashioned action movie in terms of those we saw in the 80s where a somewhat average guy who, through the sheer force of will, manages to achieve things uh, on behalf of his family. And no violence or sick act that he perpetrates against those wrongdoers is not justified. And you, the audience, are allowed to feel good about every bad thing that he does. That is fascinating. And it makes me think that what I mentioned in, in the opening of this, of this segment, that January has become sort of a time for people who are not interested in the Oscars, that maybe Taken was the beginning of that. Because there have been a lot of movies that play to the conservative crowd to come out in January. You know, we saw movies like, um, you know, Lone Survivor, which was embraced, uh, the Afghanistan war movie that was embraced by the right come out then. I actually wrote an article for Salon about this phen phenomenon a few years ago that Hollywood has become so polarized. You know, people on the left support Hollywood, people on the right think they're a bunch of liberal degenerates. That uh, while people on the left are out seeing Oscar movies, people on the right want something that is the opposite of that, that has their values, and that is not uh, trying to win awards, it's just trying to entertain. And I wonder if that kind of started with Taken. It, the well, take by the way, interestingly yeah. enough, there's like four or five more Liam Neeson Taken-style movies, with Liam Neeson in them, that have since come out in January. Including right now, there's that one where he drives a snowplow and kills people. With it. Uh, all right, my third pick is 12 Monkeys, January 5th. 1996. What year is this? What year do you think it is? 1996. That's the future, James. Do you think you're living in the future? I'm simply trying to gather information to help the people in the present trace the path of the virus. We're not in the present now. This is a place for crazy people. I'm not saying you're not mentally ill. For all I know, you're <laughs> crazy as a loon. Here we have another movie in which Bruce Willis is locked in a mental hospital in Philadelphia. Uh, this happened in Glass, and it happened 23 years earlier in 12 Monkeys. Only, here's the Shyamalan-esque twist for you. This movie's actually good. Uh, directed by Terry Gilliam, right in his sweet spot between The Fisher King and Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, uh, 12 Monkeys is a sci-fi movie in which Willis plays James Cole, a convict who gets sent back in time from an unknown time in the future to 1996 to try to stop a plague from being unleashed on the world, a plague that's going to kill 5 billion people. Uh, the plot also has something to do with animal rights activists, a group led by Brad Pitt's character in an Oscar-nominated performance, and Cole's psychiatrist, played terrifically by Madeline Stowe, gets into the mix as well. I really like this movie. I think it's held up incredibly well. It's one of those late 90s films about the nature of our world and whether you're crazy or the world is crazy, kind of like The Matrix and Truman Show and Vanilla Sky. But I think it's every bit as good as those. It's a really complex, uh, really tightly plotted script that jumps around in time a lot. It goes back to World War I. It goes to the future. It goes to 1990 and 1996. But Gilliam's direction and the terrific performances make it hold together really nicely. And I think Madeline Stowe deserves a lot of credit because she has to kind of be the normal one amidst all of this madness. Uh, it's also aged well in one regard in that it hints at this question of whether human beings really deserve to continue living on this planet. 
which became a really common theme in superhero movies in recent years. That became the motivation for a lot of comic book villains. And this movie sort of touched on it early. And finally, I have to mention, again, the absolutely gonzo performance by Brad Pitt. I really admire him still as an actor and as a producer, but he's also settled into his movie star persona in a lot of ways in the last decade. And it's easy to forget just what an amazing character actor he used to be. And he portrays this radical activist with a severe chemical imbalance. It's absolutely thrilling and it's impossible to not watch him when he is on screen. And he's weird looking too. And I mean that in terms of he's taking a risk. Obviously he's a handsome guy now, he's a handsome guy at the time. Uh, he takes a risk that a lot of stars don't, which is he, he does not appear attractive. What, what would be viewed as his sort of biggest selling point, this is a very, very handsome movie star looking guy. He looks downright weird in the movie. I watched it recently. He's got like, you know, one eye that looks bigger than the other. Um, yeah. His, uh, well, he was, already, he was already a big star. I mean, he'd already done A River Runs Through It. Mm -hmm. He'd already done Thelma and Louise, of course. He'd already done Legends of the Fall. He could have just gone and been a movie star leading actor, but he scaled he had it done back seven. and did this. He did seven before that. He had done seven. But he came back to do this supporting role in a really interesting project, and he made the movie better, and he got rewarded for it as well with this Oscar nod. That's the end of the draft, but do you, do you have any honorable mentions you want to throw out there? Yeah, a couple honorable mentions. Um, I, you mentioned Gone with the Wind and why it's not necessarily admissible. So that month, I think, deserves honorable mention. This was the month of January 1940, which included Gone with the Wind, his Girl Friday, The Grapes of Wrath, and Shop Around the Corner, which I mentioned, obviously, uh, on a few podcasts prior. Oddly enough, it's a Christmas movie that comes out in January. But at the time, they didn't really think too much at the time. You know, movies, I believe, back then came out on a Monday instead of a Friday. Um, and it never occurred to any or, of these people to do summer blockbusters. Or maybe it's not actually a Christmas movie. <laughs> You already forfeited that draft, so I won't, <laughs> I won't hold you. <laughs> that is an incredible month, though. Like, that's probably the best month of all time for movie releases. Yes. It is, it is known as the greatest month. of. It's, it's known as the greatest January. This is back when the studios actually owned the movie theaters, so they could decide exactly what would be seen at what point in time. Um, and actually, after that, it was a few months after that, and some have credited the way that that month rolled out as it was one of the reasons that an antitrust suit was filed and ultimately the Supreme Court said, yeah, movie studios, you cannot own the theaters anymore and decide exactly what and when things will be seen. Uh, I was going to mention Dr. Strangelove, which did come out in January, but I think we talked about that on our first episode when we were talking about political. By the way, I can't uh, believe you're not mentioning The Big Bounce. I figured for sure you would mention 2004's The Big Bounce. <laughs> Uh, it's a great movie for nursing a hangover on a Sunday afternoon. You remember that? Huh? <laughs> I'm not saying that was I'm not saying you nurse the hangover and watch the big bounce, but you know, one one name Noah could have. I'm going to be honest. I think that movie saved my life. I had the worst hangover I'd ever had in my life. Will and I were roommates at the time. And I just could not do anything. And that movie came on and it is so light and easy to digest, good-looking people, jokes that are just, they're funny that you don't even have to laugh at them. They're not that funny, so, because laughing would have hurt at the time. Uh, it's just such a pleasant movie, and that movie kept me going for a couple hours until my hangover uh, went away. Thanks for reminding me. Most Elmore Leonard adaptations can do that. They're just easy enough to take. <laughs> okay, 
Well, what are we doing next week? We don't have a plan yet, do we? We don't have a plan. But All right, well, we'll come up with yeah. that, and we will be back. Yeah, I mean, movies are going to come out. We're going to talk about them. Um, hopefully, they'll be better than Glass. Any, right, any movie will do. I mean, I think literally Aquaman was a better superhero movie than Glass, and that involved giant alligators with CGI lasers on their heads. So, uh, you know, <laughs> see that, see Glass, if you got nothing better to do. But, uh, you know, otherwise, probably do something productive with your life. All right, I'll work on that. And uh, until next time. We'll see you at the movies. I have no complaint about that. that was <laughs> yeah, well, the complaint was that it's too good. That's having that problem. <laughs> I know where I'm gonna go I'm gonna pick my baby up And take her to the picture show